0: 2 Corinthians, chapter one, beginning in verse 12 for our boasting is this the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you, for we are not writing any other things to you. Than what you read or understand now, I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by of by way of you. To Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly or the things I plan? Do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes and no, no. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no for the son of God. Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who also has sealed us and and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul has dealt broadly with the subjects of consolation and explanation. Consolation for suffering. Explanation for his ministry. Now, the explanation takes place broadly in two parts. He talks about his problems in verses 8 through 14. And now he is going to focus on his plans from verse 15 to chapter 2, verse 13. As a matter of fact, his problems have a direct bearing on his plans. You see, Paul had to change his plans. And because Paul had to change his plans, his detractors and critics accused Paul of being fickle. Now, as you can imagine, ministry isn't always glamorous. I got an email from the head of um, the FBI who deals with Ministry minded issues and she sent me this it said uh, did you know that the ministry is perhaps the single most stressful and frustrating working profession and then she, she writes according to the Schaefer Institute the ministry is perhaps the single most stressful and frustrating working profession more than medical legal or political careers. Most statistics say that 60 to 80 percent of those who enter the ministry will not still be in the ministry 10 years later. And only a fraction will stay in it as a lifetime career. One study found that over 70 percent of pastors are so stressed and burned out that they regularly consider leaving the ministry. What are the elements that conspire to produce such dire statistics? And then she goes on and on about some of these issues. But that seems to be part of the point. It would appear that Paul has talked about fear and failing and suffering that he and his companions have been made to endure. And now Paul points out that these sufferings have rhyme and reason that we might comfort others in verses 1 through 7, that we might have confidence in God in verses 8 through 11, that we might be able to claim the promises of God in verses 12 through 24. Here's part of the point as we dive into this particular passage. It would appear that there were some in Corinth who questioned Paul's Calling and qualifications. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having Paul the apostle as your pastor and the congregation says, who made you the pastor? What gives you the right to be the pastor? What are your qualifications to be the pastor? Now, what are some of the charges we can glean from the passage? Apparently, Paul is accused of everything from unholy and improper conduct in verse 12, hidden and selfish motives in verse 13. They're, they're, they're claiming that he's temperamental and indecisive in verse 15. He's inconsistent in his message and his preaching in verse 18. He's weak and shaky in the faith in verse 21. And he's just not anointed for the ministry in verse 21. Ouch. You think this is bad, it's going to get worse. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul will address the issue of, well... Who ordained you? Why don't you have letters of recommendation? It seems to me that you praise yourself in chapter 3, verse 1. In chapter 4, the charges include being faint-hearted, lazy, shameful, disgraceful, scandalous behavior, walking around deceiving people and mishandling the Word of God. In chapter 5, he faces the charges of being insane. In chapter 7, he's accused of wrongdoing, defrauding and cheating people. In chapter 10, he's accused of walking in the flesh and being a coward and not of Christ. He's accused of having unauthorized authority or exceeding his authority in chapter 12. Paul is accused of not being an apostle, of damaging the church's image, of, of, of channeling money through middlemen. Now, in spite of all these accusations... Few people have suffered like Paul suffered. Few people have been so unjustly and wickedly accused without merit. Few have experienced the spiritual experiences that Paul encountered. And few have had such a thorn of suffering or been as dramatically converted as we read in the New Testament. And so you'll remember in the book of Acts when Paul experiences Having a right relationship with God, he comes and he's saved and his heart is broken and his eyes are opened and he's already one of the most hated people in all of the church. And Ananias in the book of Acts is told by the Lord to say to him, go your way for he that is Paul is a chosen vessel. I've appointed him and anointed him to speak to the Gentiles. To kings. And so Paul begins with his pure conscience in verse 12, his clear writings in verses 13 and 14, his confident and decisive plans in verses 15 through 17, Paul's consistent message and preaching in verses 18 through 20, and then his confirmation of his apostolic calling in verse 22. So let's look again in verse 12 where it says, For our boasting is this. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Paul appeals, first of all, to his accusers by noting his own pure conscience His clear conscience. Paul wasn't consumed by guilt. The testimony of Paul's conscience is, you keep accusing me of all of these different things, but my conscience says, I have done nothing wrong. And by the way, that's part of what your conscience does. It either accuses you or excuses you. According to the Bible, your conscience is a moral organ. By that, I mean your conscience doesn't necessarily know what's right, but it compels you, motivates you to do what's right. I use the illustration often like your stomach. Your stomach doesn't know what to eat. Your stomach will go, feed me. Give me something to eat. But it doesn't know what to eat. So if you wind up at Taco Bell and you start stuffing down green burritos and and tacos, your stomach is going to try and digest it. Your stomach is going to try to eat whatever you put down there. That's why you have a brain. You have a brain that's supposed to make you wise concerning what you're going to put in your stomach. And your conscience is exactly the same way. It doesn't know what's right. It motivates you to do what's right. So your conscience is constantly going, do what's right, do the right thing, do what's right, do the right thing. And that's why you have so many of your friends who will say, this is right for me. In other words, your conscience has to be informed from a source that's credible and reliable. And so our conscience is to be informed by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. It gives us a way to think about our circumstance. So the testimony of Paul's conscience is, I am pure. So when he says, for our boasting is this, it's the Greek word kaucesis or kaukesis. It means rejoicing. Sometimes it's translated glorying or glory. So when he says for our boasting is this, there's two kinds of boastings. There's the self-serving boasting. When you brag about your credentials or you brag about your abilities or you brag about your gifts. That's not what was taking place here. We might think of the word he says for our proud confidence is this. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity. That Greek word simplicity is haplo. It's haplo, teddy. Now, when Paul says that, he's saying, look, I lived a life not of extravagance, but of simplicity. Basically, the word means a singular mind, a singular heart. So his statement is, look, I wasn't divided. I had a singular focus and a singular mind. It's on the lordship of Jesus Christ. This becomes an important thing for both of you, for us to understand. What he is saying is my life is characterized not by duplicity, but but by the opposite of duplicity or double mindedness. The idea is I'm not going to be distracted or turned away. It carries with it that his focus is on God. It's his focus is on Christ. And it means following the Lord with simplicity and singleness of mind. And so he's saying, so in his conscience, he's saying, I need you to understand something. My focus has always been on Christ. My singular commitment is to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, there are certain manuscripts. There's a fifth century manuscript. Most of the Latin manuscripts um, have this word simplicity. Simplicity. But there's several other manuscripts from the fourth century, Vaticanus, Sidiaticus. They translate this word, hagiotetai. That is a word for holiness. So there is some statements for some people that they go, is Paul talking about simplicity or is he talking about holiness Whether he's talking about simplicity or whether he's talking about holiness, he's talking about being freed from the filth and the uncleanness of duplicity. And so basically he's making an argument. I lived in the world in simplicity, godly sincerity or holiness, not with fleshly wisdom. And so when he says not with fleshly wisdom, and godly sincerity, it carries with it, again, the idea of holiness, the idea of purity. In the ancient world, it meant I conducted myself in an unadulterated, unstained, untainted fashion. We have a word, unadulterated, it, it, or unstained, original that's part of the point that he's making. It carries with it the idea that his life, his ministry, has been under the glaring lights of this, of the light of day. So that every aspect of his ministry could be evaluated. Later, Paul will write in chapter 11... Verse 3 of 2 Corinthians. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your minds should be tempted or corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so he's basically saying, I'm not living in such a way where I've compounded my life with all kinds of extraneous stuff. As a matter of fact, in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, if you just turn the page and you read, it says, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God and Christ. Here's what he's basically saying. The Lord watches. The Lord sees. The Lord knows the Lord knows my heart. Paul lives by the grace of God, not in fleshly wisdom. And so when the Bible uses the term fleshly wisdom in verse 12, he's speaking of human wisdom. He's speaking of human opinion. in other words, that which in its origin originates in the fallen mind of man, in the fallen heart of man. Does Paul say we should despise reason? No. Is Paul saying that somehow what we say and do should contradict reality? No. Does this mean that Paul despises reason? No. What Paul despises is fallen human reason and opinion That pits itself against the wisdom of God. Against the truth of God. Against the gospel of God. Paul is in effect appealing to the mind of God and the mind of Christ. He is in effect saying, no, the thing that has informed my thinking and my reasoning on these issues is the mind of Christ, the 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 reality that Jesus changes us from the inside out. Christ gives us the ability to discipline our mind, discipline our appetites, discipline our bodies, discipline our pleasures. Paul is counting on the Lord Jesus to change his life and govern his behavior and control his conduct. Now, here's part of the point. Paul is being accused of not being a real believer. See, you're laughing at at the absurdity of the statement. Because if anyone's life was ever changed by the power of God, it's Paul. And so Paul writes in verse 13, For we are not writing any other thing to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even, even to the end. Let me help you understand what you're reading. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying... When I wrote to you, I didn't have a hidden or a deceptive motive. Remember, we're reading 2 Corinthians. Remember what we've already learned. Paul has written another letter to the Corinthians. Which letter is that? Good Bible students. 1 Corinthians. He's written the book of 1 Corinthians to them. We also have strong... Suspicions that he wrote yet a second letter that isn't included in the Bible and that has been lost, and then he wrote what you're reading at this very moment. So what again is he saying? Paul is saying I wrote to you, and what I wrote to you I didn't have a hidden or deceptive motive. When it says if we're not writing any other thing to you than what you read or understand. The word understand in the Greek language is epi, gynosco. There's two kinds of understanding that the Greek language seems to impart. There's the understanding of an intellectual acknowledgement of the facts. By that, I mean something like, I know that we are $16 trillion in debt. Okay, you can intellectually... Say, okay, I know that, I, that we are $16 trillion in debt as a country. Let me put it even more personal. Imagine you know that you are $1,000 in debt. Epiginosco is you know by personal experience that you're really in debt and that you've got to figure out a way to pay it back. That's the difference. In other words, one is an intellectual assent The other is something that you know from personal experience. What Paul is talking about, you have read and understood. That means you've understood it because you read it for yourself. Some in the Corinthian church were suggesting that Paul's first letter to the Corinthians was full of deception. That Paul wrote about things that he didn't really believe. Or that he himself would never really walk or, or, or embrace. Remember in 1 Corinthians how Paul talked about the wilderness experiences. He talked about spiritual gifts. Remember the huge chapter in chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. One of the great documents of all of human literature. The great love passage in the Corinthians are saying, he didn't really mean that. And your life doesn't really reflect that. Paul, they're, they're accusing him that he didn't practice what he preached. I think that what Paul is doing in verse 13 is he's defending his writings. Paul is in effect saying, look, you read what I wrote to you. You don't have any need to read between the lines. There's no subtle message There's no hidden meaning everything is clear and on the surface for everyone to understand i was reading a statement today preparing an expository message is like walking through a riverbed looking for gems some gems lie in plain sight others are exposed only with careful and persistent effort in a carefully selected text some of the most profound truths are just below the surface and require careful search but the results are always worth the effort and And he quotes Haddon Robinson in in his book, Biblical Preaching, where Haddon Robinson says, I have six faithful friends. They taught me all I knew. Their names are how and what and why, when and where and who. I love that. Because some things. You really do have to dig deep in order to get the answer. But Paul. Here is basically saying. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to say one thing and mean another. I'm not trying to motivate you to know and love Jesus and live for Jesus. And I myself refuse to know him and love him and live for him. Paul also wants them to acknowledge What they acknowledged in the past, that is his authority, his sincerity, his honesty, his fair dealings with them. So in verse 14, he says, as also you have understood us in part that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord. I want you to look at it carefully as also you have understood us in part I think that what Paul is saying is, in some way in the past, you acknowledged us in part. In other words, did everyone in Corinth question his authority, his sincerity, his honesty? His fair dealings. That can't be. Because so many people. Got saved. They heard the gospel. They responded to the gospel. Their hearts were changed. Their lives were changed. Their everything changed. Because of the ministry that Paul had brought to them. But some of them were suspicious. And some of them. Didn't accept his authority. So. I suspect it means that the Corinthian church had only partially acknowledged Paul. The Corinthian church was not unanimous in acknowledging his apostolic authority. Yet it would appear again that some did. They were faithful and loyal and standing with him, remembering who he was and what he did. And so in a very real sense, Paul was their father in the faith. Now think about that for just a moment. Some of you have had many teachers... And you've benefited from the teaching. I think of all of the teachers in my life who have made such a profound impact on me. Chuck Smith and um, some of the other Calvary pastors like, like Skip Heitzig and John Corson. These men who have poured their lives and their ministries into me. And I think of all of the other great Bible teachers who I have benefited from as, as I've read their writings and, and heard them teaching. But I only have one person who led me to the Lord. As a matter of fact, I was having a conversation with him when I first came to this particular uh, part of the planet Earth here in Colorado. The guy who led me to the Lord was Tom Stipe. He's the pastor of Crossroads Church um, north of us. He used to be the youth pastor at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa in 1973. That's 40 years ago. And I remember when I came here 20 years ago, And I said, Tom, I I know that you don't necessarily know me from Adam, but... I just want you to know that on March 3rd, 1973, you were preaching. You were preaching from John 11, and I remember the passage like it was yesterday. I remember what you said. I remember how God used you and how the Holy Spirit spoke to the circumstances of my my heart, my sin, my sinfulness, and how I needed a Savior. And that night, I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I said, just like Paul wrote in Corinthians, that you've had many teachers, but you've only had one Father. And I said, I am so grateful to God, how God used you in my life to bring a message of hope, to proclaim the gospel and that God used you as a mouthpiece so that I could hear and respond to the gospel. This is part of what Paul is saying here. I know that I came to you and I know that I spoke to you and I know that so many of you responded. You understood about the gospel. That's what he means when he says that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord. Paul is remembering that he pointed them to Jesus in a very real sense. He's their father in the faith and so Because he's their father in the faith, this gives him this profound sense of rejoicing. The believers he had helped lead to Christ and grow in faith would be his crown of rejoicing in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What day is that? Look what it says in verse 14. In the day of the Lord Jesus. What day is that? Some people call it judgment day. Some people call it the final day. Some people call it the day of reckoning. Is there going to be a day when everything that we've said and everything that we've done here is over with? There is. Those of you who have lived as long as I have, there comes a point in your life where slowly but surely you begin to know at least as many people in heaven as you do here on the earth. There's a day of reckoning. There is a day in which... We will be evaluated, which will give an account of our life. And that's part of the point that Paul is saying in the day of the Lord Jesus. He is in effect saying to the Corinthians, guess what? In the day of judgment or the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. Is it going to be a day of fame for Paul, notoriety for Paul, fortune or pleasure for Paul? What is Paul going to bring to the throne of Jesus as the fruit of his ministry? Here's what he's basically saying. I'm bringing you, Corinthians. I'm bringing you. That's what the minister hopes to do. The minister hopes to bring the people whose lives have been changed, whose hearts have been touched, who grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. So Paul is in effect saying, guess what? I'm ready to face the day of judgment. And guess what else I'm ready to do? I'm ready to present you. As the meaning and the purpose and the value of my ministry, by the way. Are we beneficiaries of his apostolic ministry? Does his influence continue even tonight? Even tonight, as we read what he wrote so long ago, are we beneficiaries? Yeah, the answer is yes. We're receiving from Paul at this very moment. So in verses 12 through 14, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that he's always been straightforward in his dealings with him. Paul has this assurance, and that's the truth. Paul was holy. Paul was transparent, not duplicitous. There's no pretense in his ministry. There's no sham. He's not presenting his own opinion. He's presenting the wisdom of God. So Paul acts with the undeserved gifts and abilities that have been given to him by God. He's basically saying, everything that God has given to me, I'm giving to you. So, it prompts a question. What are you going to present to God on the day of judgment? What is it that you will bring to Jesus on the day when Jesus says to you, it's time to give an account for your life. It, it's time for you to tell me what is it that you have brought here to me that will last forever. And I think you know that the only thing that really matters, the only thing that has real value, the only thing that is going to have any real meaning... Is all that you've said and all that you've done for Jesus. The life that you've lived for Jesus. The ministry that you've embraced for Jesus. Those moments that you have allowed your life to be governed by Jesus. Directed by Jesus. Guided by Jesus. And so Paul gives his confident and decisive plans. Look at verse 15. And in this confidence I intended to come to you before. That you might have a second benefit. Here and in this confidence and benefit, Paul writes that he wanted to visit the Corinthian Christians for another benefit or a second benefit. By the way, the word translated benefit is interesting. It's the Greek word charis. Odd, isn't it, that it should be translated Benefit, because often in the New Testament, it's translated grace. The literal meaning is a second grace, but it can be translated that you might twice receive a blessing. The NIV translates this, that you might benefit twice. Art and Gingrich, the Greek scholars say that you might have a second proof of my goodwill. Some have suggested Double blessing, I think that the American standard captures the meaning of the text when it says, and in this confidence, I was minded to come first unto you that you might have a second benefit. In other words, the confidence is a reference to the acknowledgement that Paul is a true apostle of Jesus, that he is sincere that he has earned their trust, he has earned their esteem, he has earned their affection. And so when he talks about a second benefit, I think what he means is so that you can be blessed coming and going. In other words, part of his plan was, I meant to come to you once so that you would be blessed once, and then I meant to come to you again so that you would be blessed twice Now, some of you might be thinking, really? Paul is actually writing this? Paul is writing about trust and confidence and esteem and affection? Does he seem a little insecure to you? What if I told you that most pastors really are insecure? They're insecure in their calling. And their gifting. Most pastors, I think, aren't in the pulpit thinking, I'm such a wonderful pastor. I'm such a great orator. I'm such a gifted communicator. I'm such a brilliant teacher. Most of the pastors that I know are deeply and profoundly aware of their guilt, their limitations, their inconsistencies. I'm, most of the pastors that I know have to pray and beg God to be used by God in spite of hypocrisies and inconsistencies and failures. But what if I were to suggest to you that Paul expects trust and confidence and esteem and affection, not because he's insecure, but because he really deserves it. Has Paul Done anything to lead the Corinthian believers that the accusations that are made against him are true. No, he has sacrificially labored and given his life. And so, Paul seems to be conveying the thought that his original plan was to visit them first on his way to Macedonia. According to this plan, Paul would have two visits. First, on his journey into Macedonia. And then on his return to Macedonia. And so the idea is the Corinthian are going to benefit from him coming. And they're going to benefit from him going. Some believe that the first benefit was Paul's first visit as it's recorded in Acts 18. That the second benefit would be his arrival. Under the circumstances that he's talking about it right now, whichever one happens to be correct, the net effect is Paul's statement saying, I'm not looking for reasons to make your life miserable. I'm looking for reasons to make your life hopeful. I'm looking for reasons to encourage you and not discourage you. I'm looking for reasons for you to trust Jesus and not Not trust yourself. I'm looking for reasons for you to experience hope and grace and mercy, not guilt and condemnation. So in verse 16, when he says to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea, when he's talking about going to them from Macedonia and then be helped by you on my way to Judea. It was his deep desire to take up an offering, not for himself. It wasn't some sort of scam. It wasn't a passing of the plate or the hat. It wasn't Paul going, now I want you to give me your best seed faith offering. I want you to experience the benefits and the glories. And if you'll give me one denarius, then God will give you back a hundred. That's nonsense. That's not what Paul was trying to do. Paul was going to take up an offering because there were Christians in Jerusalem who were in pain and poverty. And they were literally hanging on by a thread. And so he wanted the well-to-do Corinthians to understand the poverty and necessity that was taking place in Jerusalem. You'll remember when Paul spoke to the leaders at Jerusalem that, 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 that he received instructions to minister to the Gentiles. Only James, the brother of Jesus, said to Paul, we just ask you to do one thing. We, we just hope that as you minister to the Gentiles that you'll remember the poor. And he said, the very thing that, that I was more than happy to do. So how are we to think about this? William MacDonald tries to make sense of the plan. He writes, the plan then was that when Paul left Ephesus, he would cross over to Achaia. I don't know if you have a map in the back of your Bible or James, if we even have the map of Greece or we can get it later. But if you have a map in your Bible, if you go to modern day Turkey And you look at where Ephesus is located. Paul was planning to leave Ephesus. He was going to cross over to the southern peninsula, which is called Achaia, where Corinth was located. And then he was going to travel north to Macedonia. And then after having preached in Macedonia, then he was going to backtrack, retrace his steps, go south to Corinth. He hoped that the Corinthian believers, in their generosity... And their grace and their mercy would help him on his way to Judea. That's what he means when he says to help you and to be helped by you. And then in verse 17, he says, therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes and no, no? Have you ever heard the expression? The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Lord Halifax said, The man who leaves nothing to chance will do few things badly, but he will do very few things. Let me just be blunt. Have you ever planned to do something and your plans didn't turn out? It's really that simple. Have you ever planned... To visit your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your children. Have you ever planned to go someplace or do something and the plans didn't work out? Did you plan that your life would be the way that it is? Or did you have something else in mind? Did Paul make plans? The answer is yes. Did those plans come to fruition? The answer seems to be no. In other words, Paul went from Ephesus to Troas. When he goes from Ephesus to Troas, he doesn't find Titus. And because he doesn't find Titus, he goes directly to Macedonia, omitting Corinth from his schedule or itinerary. And the people in Corinth are going, Paul's a flake. Paul's a fickle flake. What kind of an apostle says he's going to show up and then he doesn't? What kind of a, a, an apostle says, we plan to do this, and then he reneges on his plan? Some of you might be thinking, Gino, you planned You plan to teach the book of Romans. What are you doing teaching 2 Corinthians? You told us it was your plan to teach Romans, and now you're teaching 2 Corinthians. Uh, yeah. That is what I planned. But guess what? Sometimes plans change. And it's not because I'm a flake. Or because I'm fickle. I know you're thinking, oh yeah, go ahead and say it. Like that makes it true. (laughs) But Paul is addressing the person who thinks he's a double-minded flake. Are you a double-minded flake simply because... Sometimes the plans don't work out the way you had hoped. You know, some people plan to be married a lifetime. And then their husband leaves them. They plan to be married a lifetime. And then plans change. They plan to be fiscally sound and financially secure. And then plans change. You plan to do your best for your family and your children, and then plans change. So when Paul says, therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? He's addressing the person who thinks that he's a double-minded flake. The critic is saying, you're a flake, you're double-minded. You say one thing and you do another. How could you possibly be a true apostle? And so Paul is saying, am I planning with fleshly motives? Am I guided by what's comfortable for me, what's expedient for me, what's best for me? Paul is in effect saying, look, I didn't change these plans in order to make my life easier or yours harder. Philip seems to capture the spirit of the verse when he translates it. Because we had to change this plan, does that make us fickle? Do you think I plan with my tongue in my cheek saying, yes, yes, no, no? Here's the accusation You said yes, but you meant no. That's what this means. You said yes, but you meant no. And so Paul is going to address the issue. In verse 18. He says, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. In other words, Paul is reminding the reader of 2 Corinthians, not only that God is faithful, but he's asserting the explanation for his conduct is not that he's saying one thing and doing another. He's denying the accusation. He's denying the charge that he's a flake that when you say yes, you mean yes, and when you say no, you mean no. He says that God is faithful. In other words, has God become less faithful because I had to change my plans? Is Jesus less the Lord because I had to change my plans? Are Are your sins not forgiven because I had to change my plans? Is heaven a real place and are you going there In spite of the fact that I had to change my plans. See, you understand the point. The point is what fundamentally has changed. About the message of hope and the message of the gospel and all of the promises of God. So in verse 19, so it says for the son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me, Paul, Sylvanus, his traveling companion and Timothy was not yes and no. But in him that is in Jesus Christ, it was always yes. But what does that mean? Paul's argument seems to take an entirely different direction. In other words, Paul's actions are not fickle and subject to change. Jesus is the Savior. Do plans change? Yes. Does Jesus change? No. He's the unchanging Lord. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, if for whatever reason your pastor is a flake, Does that change the gospel? Even if your pastor is a flake. Does it change the identity of Jesus? Even if your pastor is a flake. Does it change salvation? Redemption? Justification? Sanctification? And all of the promises of God? Now, even though all of that is true. Should your pastor be a flake? No, he shouldn't be a flake. His life and his ministry should be tied to the gospel because Jesus is the Lord, because Jesus says the truth, because the gospel is true. Paul's preaching and message isn't unstable, but stable. Remember, there's no shadow or turning in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's preaching and message was not unstable, but stable, not changing But unchanging, because Paul preached the same thing over and over again. Christ, him crucified for the remission of sins and the hope of heaven. Now, I want you to understand something. This argument may not seem strong or persuasive to Paul's critics. Okay, Paul, let me get this straight. Gospel's true. Jesus is true. Bible is true. And you're a flake. Paul's argument is, look, because the gospel is true and because Jesus is true and because Jesus has changed my mind and my heart and my circumstances, the truth is my life is hidden in Christ and it's not in anyone's best interest for me to be a hypocrite or inconsistent. It may not sound persuasive. To Paul's critics, but it does reveal the utter sincerity of Paul. Who preaches that Jesus is the Lord, Paul preaches that Jesus is the Lord and that even though people can make vile accusations against him. Even though people might say that he is less than perfect. Or let's go even worse. They say he's a hypocrite. They say that he's insincere. They say that he's a flake. But Paul is basically arguing. How can I in a good conscience preach a faithful God. And me be unfaithful to his word. Sadly. Sadly. Are there pastors, are there preachers, are there leaders who can preach a faithful God and be unfaithful to his word? I think that the answer is yes. What about Paul? Is it possible that he's still a hypocrite, insincere, and a flake? Possible, but not probable. Doesn't everything in Paul's life and ministry seem to reflect a person who is deeply devoted to the things of God and Christ? And so in verse 20, it says, for all the promises of God in him that is in Jesus are yes, And in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. What is Paul saying? Again, the American Standard, I think, captures the meaning of the verse. For how many soever be the promises of God, in him is yea, wherefore also through him is the amen unto the glory of God through us. We might say, Paul is arguing all the promises of God, no matter how many promises there are. If you begin in Genesis and go through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and you calculate all of the promises in the Old Testament, all of the promises in the book of Psalms, all of the promises in the prophets, all of the promises in all of the Bible. Paul is claiming that all of the promises of God find their fruition and fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And one of the interesting things to me is that the way that Paul addresses the accuser and the critic. Is he doesn't just simply make some sort of compelling argument for his own sanctity and his own rightness. He constantly points people back to Jesus over and over and over again. The Bible is true. The promises of God are true. The person of Jesus is true. The ministry of Jesus is true. That's what Paul means when he says in and through him, we appropriate and we take everything to ourselves and we can draw this conclusion about Jesus. I can trust Jesus. I can believe Jesus. I can trust Jesus and believe Jesus. Do you understand what Paul is doing? He's saying, look to his critic and accuser, even if you're not willing to trust me. Will you please trust Jesus? Will you trust him with your life? Will you trust him for forgiveness? Will you trust him as your hope? Will you trust him for your future? Isn't that interesting? Note the words at the very end of the sentence. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen. To the glory of God. What are the last two words? Through us. Paul reminds the Corinthians that it was the preaching of Paul, it's the preaching of Sylvanus, it's the preaching of Timothy, that they're able to claim the promises of God in Christ. Remember back in those days, not everybody had a book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. They couldn't go through the Bible. They, they didn't have it online, on their laptop, on their tablet. They didn't have 26 different translations of the Bible. They had men like Paul and Silvanus and Timothy who would open up the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the book of Psalms. These are men who would tell the story of Jesus. And finally, Matthew's gospel is written and then Mark's. Well, actually, Luke is next. So Matthew writes, Luke writes. Mark writes, John the Apostle writes The biographies and ministries of Jesus go into circulation and these writings go into circulation. But prior to that, how did the people know about the promises of God? Someone had to tell them about the promise. Someone had to say to them, do you realize that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness? Did you know that the Bible says that if you'll repent of your sin and you'll turn to Jesus, He will accept you and forgive you and He'll bring the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you? If the apostles are in fact frauds, if Paul is, as his enemies suggest, insincere, a cheat, a liar, then how do you explain their changed life? How do you explain how Jesus came into their life and changed them and renewed them and restored them? How do you explain what God has done? And of course, if they are cheats, liars, and frauds, And the gospel is a lie and a fraud. And it's not true. Then how do you explain people who experience hope and joy and the transformation of a changed life? And so Paul confirms his apostolic calling. Look in verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. So think carefully, how are we established by faith in Christ? By God, Paul writes. Who places us in Christ? God does. Who anoints us? God. Here's Paul's argument. Corinthians. Who saved you? God. Who placed you in Christ? God. Who anointed you? God. So the same God who saved you, placed you in Christ and anointed you, well, he anointed us. We share a common position. We we share a common glorious anointing. And by the way, when you see the word and God has anointed us in Christ, I think that the anointing here is a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who has set the believer apart for position and service. And that's what Paul says in verse 22, who also has sealed us note established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who also has sealed us and given his Given us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The same God that saves us, seals us, and gives us the same down payment. The Holy Spirit in our hearts. By the way, the seal in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, was a mark of ownership. In other words, the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer is the mark of ownership that the believer belongs to God. Now, in the ancient world, a seal had raised letters. They were like a cylinder and you would roll it on clay and it would make a deep indentation. Some of you have seen seals. It's on your diploma. If you went to high school or college, there's a seal of the school that's on your uh, on your diploma. It's a raised seal. So people have the seal of the Holy Spirit. People can't tell that we're Christians by some external badge or special clothing, unless, of course, it's a red sweater and a big smile. No, I'm just kidding. It's That's not the sign of the seal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is invisible, right? You can't look around the room and go, wow, I see the Holy Spirit. I I see the Holy Spirit inside of you. There there's the Holy Spirit. There he is in, in inside of you. No, the evidence of a spirit. Led life and a Spirit-filled life. That's the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you. So what is the Spirit-filled life? It's the life led by the Spirit, energized by the Spirit, including the gifts of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit anoints us and appoints us for preaching. It. The Holy Spirit warns us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit seals the believer. The Holy Spirit's job... It's to mold us and shape us and conform us into the image of Jesus. The Holy Spirit strengthens the new nature inside of us. The Holy Spirit reveals biblical truth. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us liberty. When Niccolò Paganini willed his violin to the city of Genoa, he demanded that it never be used. It was a gift designed for preservation. It wasn't destined for service. But when the resurrected Jesus willed his spiritual gifts to the children of God, he commanded that they be used. In other words, God didn't give you gifts. To keep them for yourself. But to use them for each other. And for him. And so the word sealed spragidzo, the, the verb forms spragus is the noun it means a mark or a hallmark i don't know if you've ever seen silver but it's it's stamped with a stamp identifying who made it where it came from how old it is and so it means identification ownership protection and the dominant ideal of the seal is ownership now i want you to think about this when a person surrenders their life to jesus they are you belong to jesus you're no longer your own property you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence that you belong to God. And the sealing follows believing. And so there's the word guarantee. It's the Greek word arabon, it's a legal, technical term. It meant first installment, it meant deposit, it meant down payment. It meant pledge. Part of the purchase price is paid in advance. And in the ancient world, when you put money down on something, it made that article in question enforceable by contract to be yours. It didn't make it yours. The way that I would put it is this the guarantee obligates the contracting party to make further payments. Now, I want you to understand what it is that you're reading. If Paul says that the Holy Spirit inside of you is the seal, and if the Holy Spirit is the down payment, what does payment in full look like? If you're saved and sealed and forgiven and transformed, What does the final payment look like? It is when God in Christ gives you everything and glorifies you throughout all of eternity. If he saved you here, he's going to keep you there. And so that's the idea. If the Holy Spirit in our hearts is the down payment, then can you imagine what full payment looks like? And there's an indication of what that looks like. John talks about it in in the book of 1 John when he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this, that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. John suggests that the Holy Spirit is inside of you, Molding you, shaping you, making you like Jesus, making you like Jesus, making you like Jesus. But there's going to come a day when integrity, sincerity, and the fulfillment of promises will manifest themselves in your life. And you will fully and finally and forever be like Jesus forever. Now think about what is going on in the text. As Paul is defending his apostolic calling and ministry, do you feel like Paul has spent most of the time defending himself? Or defending the gospel and the work of the gospel in the life of the believer? I think it's defending the work of the gospel in the life of the believer. In himself. And even in those who criticize him. And accuse him of being a flake, of being insincere, of being a hypocrite. And so, Paul is going to spend the vast majority of this book defending his ministry. But make no mistake about it, with every defense... Is going to be is going to come a benefit for you if you'll listen carefully to what he's saying. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. Thank you that, um, in spite of the difficulty, <laughs> in spite of the trial, in in spite of all of the reasons why it would have made perfect sense for Paul to say. You know, you Corinthians, I don't need this heartache. I don't need this headache. I don't need this aggravation. I don't need to prove anything to you. But with humility and love and sincerity, he refuses to give up on them and the ministry that God has called him to. What an amazing man and what an amazing ministry. And Lord, we pray that we would take courage, confidence from Paul's example and from Paul's words, that we would be faithful men and women, that we would be faithful to all of the ministry that's been entrusted to us, knowing that there is going to come a time when we will give an account of the stewardship that's been entrusted to us. And Lord, we pray again, that we would turn from our sin and that we would live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.